Stuff to Blow Your Mind, New York Comic Con, Stranger Things. Yes, it all comes together on October 6th from 7 p.m. to 8.30 p.m. at Hudson Mercantile in Manhattan. If you're in the area, join us for Stuff to Blow Your Mind Live Stranger Science as we explore the exciting science and tantalizing pseudoscience underlying the hit Netflix show Stranger Things. Stuff You Missed in History Class has a show right after us in the same venue so you can really double down on your stuff. And hey, the three of us would love to meet you. This is the opportunity to do it. Learn more and buy your tickets at NewYorkComicCon.com slash NYCC hyphen presents. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And, you know, we had a recent episode, R. Scott Baker, on alien philosophy and fantasy, and we chatted with Canadian author R. Scott Baker about his recent paper on alien philosophy, which published in the Journal of Consciousness Studies. And in that uh, paper, he reconstructed human philosophy while trying to imagine the philosophy of an alien civilization. And he also discussed his ongoing, heady, dark fantasy saga, The Second Apocalypse, leading into the publication of Book 7, The Unholy Consult. The magic number. Yeah. Fast forward to today. Well, The Unholy Consult... Uh, has been out for a couple of months. I read it. Uh, I ended up reaching out to Scott, uh, was chatting with him about the book, and we decided, hey, let's just have him come back on the show for a, a bonus episode. Right. So this will be bonus, not part of our regular rotation, because it's going to be about some esoteric interests. Part of it will be following up on our recent discussions about the origins of consciousness. So we're going to talk to him about consciousness, about philosophy, about artificial intelligence, but also since we get pretty deep into the weeds about his books and the spoiler-laden discussion, we thought we would uh, we would pull this one out as a bonus excerpt. That's right. And there will be a spoiler warning. So if you have not if, – if you were concerned with spoilers for, for, uh, for Scott's books and particularly if you're concerned with spoilers for The Unholy Consult, uh, don't worry. We'll give you a heads up before we proceed. Now – just to refresh, Scott's fiction explores philosophical and neuroscientific concepts through fantasy, science fiction, even detective fiction. And his second apocalypse saga follows the rise of a, essentially a thinking machine human prophet on a world plagued by an alien evil that leverages both sorcery and ancient technology in a war to shield itself from the damnation of the gods. That's a pretty good sell, Robert. Yeah, well, that's 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 it in a nutshell. Uh, I'm a big fan, uh, so you know I was happy to to chat with uh, with Scott about uh, about the books in particular and some of the uh, the metaphysics and philosophy uh, involved there. But of course, as previously, uh, he was more than happy to just dive in on anything related to consciousness, um, philosophy, or you know the the grim nature of our future. <laughs> well, I guess without further ado, we will now take you to our conversation with our Scott Baker. Hey, Scott, welcome back to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. We appreciate you taking time out of your uh, day to chat with us again. I, I guess we'll just start off with a general, how's it going, and uh, have you fully recovered from your recent eye surgery? <laughs> yeah, uh, the eye surgery uh, um, has gone off without a hitch, which is great, and uh, I, I definitely can see see much better, much better than uh, I, I could uh, um, just even a few weeks ago. Cool, yeah, because I think you said you had to... to you were basically in a prostrate uh, position, um, healing for a few days. Yeah, they they performed something called the vitrectomy, um, and you know at first because eyes everything to to do with eyes absolutely freaks me out. 
I didn't bother to uh, do the obligatory Google search. I didn't even want to know, figuring that ignorance was bliss. And so, I, I, I mean, I had a retinal tear, and this was actually uh, secondary to that. And so I assumed that uh, um, it would be the same kind of surgery. And it was endoscopic, so I was thinking it was going to be endoscopic. But what they did is they actually they actually take the all the vitreous jelly inside of your eye. They shell your eye like a Concord grape. Oh, oh no! <laughs> and then they uh, inject a saline solution and a gas. And what you need to do is you need to keep your face down. In my case, it was uh, um, only 72 hours, but uh, some poor souls have to do this for uh, longer than a week. Uh-huh. And, you know, at first I thought I spent my, so much of my time with my head down in a book that I thought, no problem, I'll just read for 72 hours straight. <laughs> and uh, oh, the first muscle spasm started after about 90 minutes, and it was just uh, it was a miserable, miserable experience. Well, I'm sorry to hear that. Uh <laughs> You know, one of the messing with eyes makes me think about consciousness. I know we wanted to talk to you about consciousness today, but um, there, there's so much that our eyes do that makes us aware of how unconscious so much of our mental processing is. Uh, like, you know, you often think of consciousness as synonymous with awareness, like what you have in your in your in your gaze. Uh, but, you know, I was thinking about the idea that uh, the the optic nerve is something that completely blocks part of your vision. And yet we totally don't notice that at all. Uh, like our eyes just put the picture together and we have this uh, perception of seeing things as they are, even though part of our visual field is totally occluded all the time in normally healthy eyes that are working as they should. And there's a lot about eyes that's like that. Um, I, I'm thinking also of uh the idea of blindsight where, you know, you can have somebody whose eyes are correctly feeding information to their brain and their brain is even processing it, yet they're somehow not aware of what they're seeing. Yeah. I mean, for me, it was it was uncanny just simply because of uh, the blind brain theory. And uh, um, it just felt like uh, I was having a living demonstration of my theory uh, uh, played out for me in my visual field. Because what happens, I had some debris land on my retina. And uh, I sleep like a vampire. I think that was the problem. And this debris, it feeds the uh, uh, retinal cells the same signal over and over and over again. And you know, when those cells get the same signal all the time, your visual uh, uh, processing centers start ignoring that information. Right. But what they don't do is tell the rest of your uh, visual processing centers that that information, you know, is missing. And so what I ended up seeing isn't, you know, uh, a black spot in front of my, um, in front of my, uh, visual field. What I ended up seeing is a visual field. I mean, it looked like, you know, if, if your visual field were, uh, projected across the screen and someone were to just grab that screen and crinkle a big bunch of it in mm. their fist. Huh. So everything, all that information was missing. All that was occluded. That's what I, that's what I would see. So, you know, if my right eye was dominant and I turned to look at my dog Mooney here, uh, every once in a while, I'd look and he wouldn't have eyes. Oh. <laughs> because I'd look, I would look to his eye and it was right in my, in my, uh, phobia, right in my, uh, uh, center of my field of vision. 
And so I'd look to his eyes, and his eyes would be missing. So it would just be fur <laughs> down to his jaws. And it was a very disconcerting experience. I mean, uh, the surgeon said I could wait and wait because there's a chance it could dislodge and go away. But it was it was just freaking me out too much. That's amazing. So uh, just to clarify, you're saying there was no darkness. There was no white spot. There was no black spot. There was just a lack of sight. Just a lack of sight. And wow. uh, um, I mean, that's the cornerstone of uh, the blind brain theory. Um, the idea that there is, I mean, if you think about darkness, it's so interesting because darkness is actually a form of visual information. So your uh, our visual centers um, have evolved the ability to actually warn the rest of uh, um, our visual processing centers to, you know, basically the absence of visual information. So we don't go into dark alleys because we know what dark alley is there. But imagine if you couldn't see darkness. I mean, what, imagine if you were blind to darkness. <laughs> you would never be able to see a dark alley. A dark alley would be like my visual field. It would be absolutely occluded. You know, the two buildings you could see would be pinched together, right? And if you were to happen to trip between those buildings, you would find yourself in a region that you simply could not see. You couldn't even see that you couldn't see, in other words. So it's, uh, um, yeah, it's a, a spooky, a spooky analogy, but, uh, but an apt one. It makes us uh, realize the way that we don't really see space like we think we see space, but really what we see does not take place in space, except insofar as it takes place in the space between neurons. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, it actually shows uh, um, that, I mean, all this stuff, space, uh, um, you know, inside, outside, you know, the the whole way in which our sensorium is uh, structured um, really you know, I mean, technically, it is nowhere at all. I mean, it's not between your neurons. It's not outside of you, right? It's, I mean, it really is a, a kind of recipe that we follow through that happens to help our body navigate space and what have you. But it's all, you know, statistical guesswork that uh, um, we sort of post facto describe in in ways that uh, um, are easily interpreted um, as being you know, nicely real or, or what have you. I mean, that's, that's kind of a, there's so many ways to, to cut that pie. You know, I mean, I think really the best thing to say is that when we start asking these kinds of questions of our experience, that really what we've done is we've tripped into to crash space. We've, we've sort of tripped outside the bounds of what that information was, you know, originally adaptively geared to uh, problem solve. And uh, uh, um, we're sort of doomed to be confused <laughs> when we pose those kinds of questions. <laughs> So, Scott, we we recently recorded uh, two episodes on Julian Jaynes, uh, the origin of the con- of, of consciousness in the breakdown of the bicameral mind, not because we're completely won over by it or anything, but d- just because we find it such a fascinating hypothesis. Yeah, it's so radical. It seems like it's probably wrong, but I've I've almost never encountered a more interestingly presented hypothesis. Yeah. So, so we were wondering, do you have uh, any specific thoughts on uh, Jaynes's theory? 
Well, this, I mean, this is something uh, I, I read when uh, when I was an undergraduate about uh, oh, geez, 30 years ago now, almost 30, well, a little less than 30 years ago. So it'd it, it have to, I'd have to really <laughs> rack the memory banks to remember the thesis. I mean, the thesis is basically the idea that um, at a certain point, our uh, um, we uh, in our past we couldn't actually internalize right the different lines of communication going on in our brain such that we automatically externalized voices and uh, impulses or what have you and blame them on the gods and that only over time were we able to actually internalize and to unify um, these uh, these uh, various various sources of uh, of information and recognize them as being endogenous. Is that is that roughly what his argument was? Yeah, that's that's pretty close. Uh, so I, I can give a, a brief rundown on it because there are so many interesting threads to pull. So basically. Jane says that consciousness is only made possible by the presence of language, which gives us the ability to create metaphors. And he views consciousness as a metaphorical mind space based on the analogy of real space in which this analog version of the self can observe and enact past events and hypothetical events in a process that Jane's calls narratizing. Essentially, he means arranging mental content into a story with cause and effect and a timeline in this metaphorical space. Um, and so he says, so that's what consciousness is now. But he says that that form of consciousness did not exist in humans until roughly 3000 years ago, uh, merging possibly in Mesopotamia and spreading across the world through cultural contact since then. And that, yeah, like you said before, consciousness Basically, when people encountered novel stimuli, whenever there was a stress point in their behavior that could not be responded to with basic uh, instinct and, you know, conditioned signal behavior, uh, they couldn't they couldn't respond to it with those things. So instead, what they perceived was an auditory hallucination telling them what to do. And originally, in the earliest forms, this would have been a hallucination of like a dominant leader in the tribal group or of a chief or of a parent or something. But over time, these voices came to be perceived as otherworldly beings called gods. And so you have this three-stage evolution where early humans are non-conscious organisms controlled entirely by instinct and conditioning. And then you have the evolution of language, and that brings about the bicameral mind, where one half of the brain commands the other half what to do, and the other half routinely obeys without objection. And then finally, about 3,000 years ago, because of various stresses that he uh, hypothesizes could have caused this, we have the consciousness revolution where people instead uh, begin to perceive of a mind space where they can work out hypothetical scenarios in this unreal space. Yeah, no, I'm not to reread that. I, I mean, uh, I remember the God stuff. Uh, um, everything that you uh, uh, said up, to, up until that point just sounds like Dennett to me. I mean, it sounds uh, um, uncannily like Dennett to the point where uh, it, it kind of uh, uh, worries me that Dennett doesn't reference James. <laughs> oh, I, th um, I uh, think Dennett often. has referenced James at some point, I recall. I don't know what book yeah. it was in, but I thought he had. I mean, because that is very similar to the theory he lays out in his uh, most recent book uh, um, from uh, bacteria to uh, Bach and back. 
which is it, it's kind of a retooling of uh, the thesis he lays out in uh, Consciousness um, Explained, um, uh, which I also read way back when for the first time, and I don't think I understood uh, um, uh, years ago when it came out. I think it was, uh, what, 1989, 1990, or maybe even later than that. Yeah, it's been a while. Yeah, but it's the same, it's the same notion. And this, the same idea that um, it's not a colossal coincidence that all the things that we experience also happen to be the, the things that uh, we can speak of and that uh, um, experience is kind of a uh, uh, linguistic palette that we use to interface not simply with uh, other brains, but with our own brain uh, as, uh, as well. And that uh, um, the types and forms of information that are available in this interface are are so geared to their applications that it actually makes sense to talk about things like James uh, is obviously discussing, you know, a transformation uh, um, in consciousness or, or a transformation into consciousness simply on the basis uh, of the ways in which we linguistically uh, categorize and uh, um, apply the types of information that experience renders uh, renders available. Yeah, it's fascinating, fascinating stuff, absolutely fascinating stuff. Definitely uh, um, uh, a kernel of truth, I think, in, in, uh, in that way of looking at consciousness, definitely. Yeah, I, I would say the book is definitely worth a reread, even though, it, you know, like we say, you have to assume it's probably wrong because it's <laughs> it's so specific and it's so radical. But then again, I love how specific it is. I mean, so many theories of consciousness don't get that gritty about about the cause and effect of the evolution of consciousness. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and, you know, it's one of the things that's always like really, really struck me um, as a philosophy student over the decades. Um, because I've gone through such huge conversions myself, right? you know, from you know being a 14-year-old um, stumbling into uh, um, the problem of determinism, you know, without any sort of, you know, education to help me out, and becoming a naive nihilist, convinced that experience was completely an illusion. I, I mean, completely convinced. And uh, um, I remember you know, phases like that. <laughs> Doing all these drugs and just freaking out at uh, um, you know what my own phenomenology seemed to be uh, telling me, and then all of a sudden stumbling into Heidegger and being completely blown away in the opposite direction, and suddenly feeling as though everything about me was steeped in meaning, in in purpose. And this uh, notion that uh, um, I was almost like a deep sea submersible, <laughs> um, you know, uh, making existence happen, right? Simply by being a, a, a interstice that forced whatever was being thrown my way into my projects, into my cares, right? Into into my worries. And most importantly, into uh, um, the structure of uh, my own temporal existence, right? Having a future, having a past, having a now that it's statically uh, uh, combined all three. 
And then, of course, Derrida sort of blew that apart. <laughs> and, and, you know, here I am now, back to where I was when I was uh, 14 years old. And even though at each point I was almost evangelical as to what my experience was telling me, um, uh, you know, there's just radical incompatibilities between all of those, you know, um, from my phenomenology being the very ontological foundation of my existence to my uh, um, phenomenology being, you know, a, uh, a deceptive uh, assemblage of phantasms. I mean, uh, how can it be both things at once? And how can it feel like it has to be that way to the same being at two different times? I don't know. Maybe James had something uh, had something right about uh, the collective progression of uh, of our self understanding. Well, one thing I like about what Jane's offers is that he definitely does give an interesting secular accounting of how consciousness could be adaptive, how it could do something uh, that's, you know, apart from just the helpless observer theory, the idea, as you know, that consciousness, yeah, it exists, there is phenomena, but it, it just observes what the body does without any power to change anything. According to Jane's and his version of consciousness, consciousness is a, uh, you know, it's a metaphorical space in which we can work out hypotheticals and this, this would not be available, you know, this kind of introspective simulation of behavior and, and case running and testing would not be available to organisms that did not have the power to introspect. I wonder what you think about that. For me, it's like, you know, reflective consciousness. So when we engage in metacognitive deliberation, you know, I, I see that as being a, uh, um, uh, in, in definitely in the terms we understand it as, you know, uh, you know post-scientific humans. Um, I see that as uh, being uh, deeply, deeply uh, deceptive in a lot of ways. I mean, I think it's responsible for this explosion of philosophical interpretation, just like that little, you know, life story I gave you of my own interpretation of my phenomenology. That was born of basically humans reapplying their metacognitive capacities to experience in ways that those metacognitive capacities just simply never evolved to be applied, right? So you could say all philosophical reflection, in, in a sense, is a kind of misapplication of our metacognitive uh, uh, capacities. But still, it's enormously creative. You just got to look at the philosophical canon to see how creative it is. And out of, you know, that scholastic mountain of incompatible interpretations, you could argue that there's a great, great number of, uh, of uh, nuggets that have been uh, taken away and taken up in all sorts of different ways that uh, um, have ultimately profited uh, um, humanity. Um, I'm inclined to think that it's a accidental uh, um more, it's more dumb, a matter of dumb luck stumbling across, you know, some interpretation that actually ends up enabling something that becomes socially useful uh, um, down the road. Um, I don't know. I think there's just too much disagreement, too much fallow thinking for uh, um, it as far as I'm concerned, to be um, obviously, obviously practical. 
in the way you're suggesting James is, is, is suggesting. I mean, otherwise, you know, um, all the ways we use it instinctively all the time, catching your tongue, you know, when uh, your mother-in-law says something at the dinner table, mm-hmm. um, pondering for a second to remember where you put your keys, you know, taking a deep breath during a squash game to try to understand what it is you're doing wrong that's letting your uh, buddy kick your ass. Um, all those sort of natural applications of metacognition are, are very powerful, very effective. You know, the, the, question, the, the real questions arise when we take all the, those practical capacities and we start saying, solve this theoretical problem, solve that theoretical problem, and so on and, and so forth, especially in the absence of, uh, of uh, empirical information. I'd imagine in Jane's version, the landscape in which it does arise is more the former, what you're talking about. You know, it's in day-to-day dealings. It comes not from people trying to solve big philosophical problems. You know, it wasn't Plato who invented consciousness, but people trying to deal with uh, hectic novel stimuli in their day-to-day lives and figuring out how to survive them. I mean, it'd be interesting to, I mean, this is the thing that I think backs a lot of critics of Bennett is this idea that, um, you know, if consciousness is a user illusion, the way the way he insists it, it is, and um, if experience, you know, um, isn't, you know, real the way he seems to imply it is. I mean, he certainly doesn't believe that there's any such thing as qualia. Uh, um, and the question is, um, what is it? <laughs> I mean. Um, is it something that we just make up? You know, when I think about the redness of red, I mean, it seems as intuitively there as anything could possibly be. You know, but there's no such thing as quailia, Dan. How could that possibly be? And uh, um, you could probably ask the same question of James, I'm sure. Um, I mean, was uh, red not read <laughs> before we develop consciousness? Um, or how about animals? How about creature consciousness? Right? Um, do dogs have some sort of, you know, uh, palette of visual awareness that uh, um, is unique to them? Um, I don't know. It, it, when you start asking questions about you know, uh, um, sensory consciousness and, and uh, um, all these arguments uh, um, as to, you know, the ways in which judgments make consciousness happen as opposed to, say, impose uh, interpretations upon, right, some kind of hile, some kind of uh, um, er consciousness. Um becomes becomes very difficult for people to uh, buy into, I think. Yeah, I mean, obviously, I, I think one of the things that contemplating this leads us to is that this question of like whether consciousness is one core event and phenomena, as, as Jaynes does seem to think it is, like for him, consciousness is one thing that he defines fairly specifically and fairly persuasively in some sense. But then again, you know, you look at people like Dennett and they would say, I guess, would Dennett say that consciousness is uh, an assemblage of different mental phenomena that you are just, you're linking together and calling a, a single phenomena. Is that about right? Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, Denny, he's notoriously slippy, slippery when it comes to the when it comes to the mental, right? I mean, uh, um, um, I mean, for him, you know, it's all interpretation, all the way down. And um, but at the same time, he wants to always insist that there's these real patterns that are motivating interpretations, right? So when he talks about uh, mental events, mental imagery, I mean, he says, of course it's there, right? but then when he talks about the things all that philosophers want to say about mental events and mental imagery, mental imagery, it really starts to sound like he's saying it's not there at all. <laughs> mm-hmm. And uh, uh, um, I, I think that's another thing that uh, people find uh, frustrating trying to uh, nail down his position. I, I, I actually <laughs> think that uh, what Bennett wants to say is that, um, I mean, like just think, close your eyes and imagine, you know, uh, um, your favorite pet, you know, from your childhood, you know, as, as best you can. And, you know, then ask yourself, um, which way is the shadow falling across, you know, your, your pet's left paw, you know, um, is your pet's fur well, you know, well groomed? Is there any blemishes of, of any kind? Um, is your pet perfectly still or is your pet moving? I, I, I mean, all these questions aren't the kinds of questions we normally ask of mental imagery. <laughs> and, and so they kind of seem misplaced. Like I'm not looking at a photograph or watching a video of my pet. I'm imagining my pet in my mind's eye. So you can just sort of see that whatever the information mental imagery provides, you know, it only has so many degrees of cognitive freedom, right? There's only so many different kinds of questions you can ask of it before the questions just kind of seem to start to miss the point or to obscure or confuse the matter. And if if you take that, which seems pretty obvious with mental imagery, and then apply it to consciousness as a whole and say, well, what kind of questions can we ask of conscious experience? Um, then I think Bennett starts making the uh, um, whole hell of a lot more sense. You know, because... Mm, well, you know, his book's red. It looks red. You know, but Quelia, what the hell do you mean by Quelia? You know, this, because Quelia is a categorization, right? It's a, a, a way to use metacognition to regiment experience. And that arguably isn't something that metacognition, you know, our ability to reference experience was ever designed to do. And so perhaps, because of the way Quelia creates so much confusion in so many areas of philosophy of mind, right? perhaps Quelia is just one of those things we should get rid of because it really doesn't belong to that set uh, of questions that uh, um, experience, you know, uh, we have uh, evolved to be able to answer of experience. And just to clarify real quickly, so that uh, term qualia might not be in everybody's uh, toolkit. Well, that... qualia is just the redness of the red, yeah. right? I mean, it's the supposedly private, ineffable uh, um, uh, character or quality. I mean, qualia is a fancy way of, of saying quality. You know, what the quality of redness? You know, if you want to just talk about that, 
you know, uh, in abstraction from red or blue or, you know, the orangeness of orange or, or the brightness of, of light or what have you. You can just use that term quail again. And it's, and it's that categorization of, uh, of, uh, sensory information as, as, uh, apparently presented in conscious experience. If you don't mind, I think I got one more for you. I'll hand you back to Robert for a minute. Okay, so sure. this would be one about preferences. Do you think consciousness is inherently preferable, or if you're comfortable putting a, a moral quality <laughs> on that, is consciousness a thing to be morally uh, preferred or uh, deferred to? I mean, do, I, I think we obviously, whether or not it's right to do so, have a consciousness bias. Like, I would not want to be transformed into a being that has all the same qualities as me but is not conscious because that seems on the face of it like it would be the death of my experience. Um, and so, I mean, that that does bring up some weird connotations with Jane's theory. I mean, if there if it were possible for there to be something like a human being except not conscious, um, would would we think that that being had the same kind of rights that we did? Would would it be just as good for beings like that to inhabit the universe? Yeah, I, I mean, uh, um so for me, these questions are, they're, they're kind of almost quintessential, uh, crash space questions, right? Um, these are the kinds of questions that moral reason, uh, as the, the set of rough and ready heuristics that we use to actually navigate social and, and moral, uh, problems, just simply really, it, it wasn't equipped to, uh, um, be able to answer decisively one way or the other. Which is why they sort of have this quality of being constantly problematic, um, and never finding any sort of determination, uh, whatsoever. I'm not saying that the question shouldn't be asked because it's, it's absolutely fascinating. And it is the case in, in, uh, our lives that, uh, we defer to experience all the time. You just look at, uh, survivors of the Holocaust. Um, I mean, the moral, uh, um, authority that a Holocaust survivor possesses by virtue of having suffered, having experienced what they experienced is a, a powerful thing. It has a palpable influence uh, on uh, individuals, particularly in the company of those, uh, of those people. But what if you're talking about a zombie who suffered the Holocaust? Now notice even just putting it, framing it in these terms actually kind of tickles. It almost feels like you're, you're treading upon something sacred, right? Mm-hmm. A, a zombie suffering the Holocaust seems to trivialize what these people suffered in, in, uh, uh, the concentration camps during World War II, right? I mean, even simply posing that theoretical question on a matter so morally charged Simply because of the experiences underwriting it, um, uh, makes you sort of pause and, and, and worry, right? Um, but the question itself is, is still an honest question. I mean, would we worry uh, about someone who had no experiences? In other words, who simply could not suffer. They could generate suffering behavior, but they actually never felt any suffering. Um, would we view them the same way we would view a Holocaust survivor? And the answer's got to be no, of, of, of course not, right? That person's 
just a zombie. Uh, um, morality, whatever it is, is anchored, anchored in experience. And to the point where moral intuitions are social, it makes it makes a, a tremendous amount of sense, given Jane's thesis that consciousness is, in some sense, uh, uh, linguistic. Insofar as you know, it's our social communications of experiences that we use to primarily communicate, you know, moral urgency, moral import, or what have you. Yeah, I mean that just leads to a very troubling conclusion, I guess, that would be, that would draw from, uh, you know, if you were to give any credence to Jane's and say that the, his, his picture of the evolution of consciousness is correct, it would be to basically say that there was not much of anything morally worth anything on earth until about 3000 years ago. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I, I mean, uh, um, I mean, it's a question, um, that is absolutely pressing question when it comes to animal rights. I mean, animal rights advocates um, presume that, you know, animals deserve, uh, um, warrant the same moral consideration as humans do, simply because animals suffer and feel and experience as, as uh, humans do. But if it's the case that consciousness, you know, is actually linguistic, then you'd have to say that animals have no consciousness. In which case, then, really, human morality doesn't seem to apply to them at all. And that's, I mean, for a lot of people, those those are are, are fighting words. I mean, I learned yeah. I learned some time ago not to not to raise uh, that uh, you know potential uh, potential quagmire in uh, in certain company because uh, <laughs> some people get really upset very fast when you suggest that their dog isn't conscious. Well, that gives you some uh, some social reasons for resisting Jane's thesis, in addition to the questions you have about its uh, rigorous merits. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but I, I mean, the bottom line is, and, and I mean, Dennett even discusses this in uh, um, from uh, bacteria to pocket back. Um, I mean, the bottom line is, is that if you're going to be, um, you know, sort of empirically tough-minded about this, you just you, you can't let you know, your moral intuitions or, or even, you know, your cherished conceits bear on the question of whether or not animals have conscious experience or not, right? I mean, it's a, it's a real question and it's not resolved. And it won't be resolved until we know what the hell consciousness is. And, uh, um, even though a great many people are, you know, entirely convinced that animals have to have conscious awareness, science has this horrific history of overthrowing our most cherished conceits and, and beliefs. So, you know, all you can do is uh, buckle up and cross your fingers. Well, uh, I think we're going to have to go into the the robot landscape of the future, maybe on the moral maxim that if you're not sure whether a thing has consciousness or not, you should treat it like it does. <laughs> yeah, it seems like a pretty good rule of thumb. I mean, it's certainly the rule of thumb I, uh, I, I use. And uh, um, I have about as dismal a, a view of consciousness as you could possibly have. <laughs> <laughs> well, so far we've let's see, we've been talking about the potential. Well, we've been talking about the mind state of of animals. We've been talking about the potential mind state of earlier humans. Now, Scott, in your second apocalypse novels, you present uh, the mind states of uh, 
essentially earlier humans, sort of uh, medieval humans, I guess you'd say, as well as a, a number of alternate uh, creatures, uh, alien entities like the Inkarai, uh, various weapons races uh, that the console has uh, created to wage war against the natural inhabitants of the world. Uh, for for listeners out there who aren't familiar with your work, there's uh, there the, the Shrank or, or Shrank. How do you prefer it to be pronounced? Well, I, I, mean, I have no preference. I call him Shrank myself. Okay. But, uh, um... Yeah, I, I, I don't worry about the pronunciation. Okay. Yeah, so for, for uh, listeners who aren't familiar, these are essentially like an orc-like warrior species. And then you have the skin spies, which are a, a face-changing infiltration unit. Um, how how did you envision the cognitive processes of these in human beings? And, and are they truly conscious? Yeah, I mean, the uh, um, one of the conceits for uh, the, this rank and, and the skin spies is that they have no consciousness um, whatsoever. Um, they don't. They don't uh, um, uh, suffer. <laughs> I, I mean, so they go through uh, all the motions. Right? They produce all the behavior that cues our interpretation of conscious states, but they don't actually possess those conscious states. And then, so the idea is that they kind of, in a strange way, as a result, stand outside of our notion of uh, uh, notions of morality. And I mean, at, at points, I, I try to play with the reader's intuitions uh, with regards to this, uh, um, because they suffer, <laughs> or they look like they suffer. <laughs> and so, I, I mean, I thought it was, uh, um, you know, given given the way I, I, I tried to basically press, you know, uh, as many moral intuitions as I possibly can to their breaking point by the end of the series. You know, um, it, it just seems like uh, a, a great you know vehicle to uh, use to cue certain intuitions and and, uh, and and then to you know subvert them, take them, take them away. <laughs> the nasty things, regardless. I mean, this kind of thing seems possibly relevant in the real world. If you imagine, again, I mentioned the future robot landscape. You know, a future where humans wage wars with robot soldiers or something like that have you know some kind of robotic warfare machines i mean i wonder if people at some point will say you know it's best to make these things look like they're really suffering when they get damaged in order to exploit our enemy's humanity and desire not to hurt them yeah that's a, I mean, that, that's a great hook for uh for a science fiction story right there i mean <laughs> uh, um um if you look at the boston dynamic uh, robots that they have. I mean, there's something uncanny about them, right? Uh, uncanny about the way they move. You know, the quadruped ones I find to actually be the most unnerving at all, uh, uh, of all. Um, they just seem organic. There's something organic about them that, once again, just simply pushes your buttons, right? I know what you mean. Yeah, I mean, Sherry, Sherry Kirkle, uh, she, uh, um, she's been using, using this term for quite a while, but it comes up, I think, in Alone Together as well. Um, she talks about, uh, uh, Dar- Darwinian buttons in, uh, human computer interaction. And the consistent finding, uh, um, across the field is that it's incredibly easy, incredibly easy to, uh, um, cue, uh, our you know, uh, um, heuristic tendencies to project, you know, or anthropomorphize, uh, um, you know, inanimate things or animals or, or what have you. It, it's really easy to get us to look at things 
as having a mind. And I, I mean, the, I, I guess the best example of that is the, the Heider-Simmel illusion. You can, um, you can look it up online uh, easily, easily enough. I mean, it's just triangles and circles and squares. And they're in, there's a hollow square with looks, that looks like it has a door. And it's just really, I mean, objectively, it's just, you know, these uh, triangles in a circle um, dancing around on the screen. That's all the information you get. And yet your brain turns it into a soap opera, you know, with this father trying to keep his daughter from this lover who persists and will not uh, um, let, uh, leave her to the devices of this evil father triangle. <laughs> and uh, uh, um, ultimately, it's like Flatland. It, it is. It's, it, it, it's Flatland only, you know, geared to the, the human tendency to, uh, um, you know, turn shapes into soap operas. So little information is required. And what that means in terms of artificial intelligence is that it really actually is easy for designers of artificial intelligences to push our Darwinian buttons. They just got to figure out where they are. And one of the creepiest things um, I came to realize, I think over the, the past uh, three, four years or so, is the degree to which the research that's being done in uh, human, you know, human uh, computer interaction is basically directed at us <laughs> and is and is discovering you know tremendous things about who we are as human beings because by knowing what these buttons are we we can actually design machines more effectively to simulate the presence of experience the presence of mind the presence of uh, of intentionality and as a result, you know, we can make humans more at ease or more willing to open their checkbooks, right? Or more disinclined to go to the local uh, polling station to vote. <laughs> I mean, right. it is very, very troubling. And so for me, the big question that arises out of um, uh, you know, robots and AI um, isn't you know, the question about, you know, battling robots in the battlefield, it's, it's more of an ecological question. You know, if, if you see humans as basically pushing each other's Darwinian buttons all the time, blindly, um, and in ways that are completely adaptive, because we basically evolved to track and understand and cooperate. But the big thing is, is once you, See things in terms of uh, humans having these Darwinian buttons, and you understand that you know these Darwinian buttons um, are what allow us to explain, understand, manipulate um, one another. You understand then that you know human social ecology is actually a really, really delicate, finely tuned thing, as delicate as any ecology in any sphere of biology, and you start looking at things like AI. But anyway, you understand that uh, um, human social ecology, ecology is as delicate as any other ecology, and that what you know artificial intelligences constitute is basically a form of invasive species, right? 
I mean, you know, these things, Microsoft's already selling them conversational user interfaces. Um, within just a few years, they're going to, you know, replace every human in every call center on the planet. Um, you know, they're going to, uh, uh, spread as quickly as anything spreads in, uh, the technological world. So inside of 10 years, you know, you're going to have spam AI. You know, I mean, we're talking about a flood of, uh, of algorithms that are designed Right to push our dominion buttons, um, in other words, fool us into treating them as being something that actually uh, um, arises from the ancestral ecologies that we actually adapted to solve. Right. So, I mean, for me, this is you know, the beginning of, of uh, the final stage of the semantic apocalypse. Right. And this is the whirlwind. <laughs> the uh the point the point at which um uh human meaning just simply becomes unworkable in any sort of traditional sense. Is uh, our the ecology that requires it to function it is going to be uh it is gonna collapse, right? I just don't see any way around it. I mean it's kinda of scary imagining how we would have to defend ourselves against machines that push our Darwinian buttons, because it seems like the main way to do that would be to desensitize ourselves to our Darwinian buttons, which would mean desensitizing ourselves to the actual needs of other conscious beings among us. And just accusing everyone of being a robot. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. I mean, to desensitize ourselves to each other. I mean, I mean, that's the, I mean, that's the, the kind of the bottom line, right? I, I mean, it, it's so social ecology or um, all of our social interactions, are ecological, right? And I mean, this is hard for people to, to grasp because it's completely invisible to them, right? I mean, it's completely occluded. Uh, um, this aspect uh, of uh, our interaction is utterly invisible to experience. When we talk to someone, we don't see ourselves as pushing Darwinian buttons. We don't look at it in, in any remotely material way or biological way whatsoever, but we are biological creatures. So ultimately, that's what it all runs on. And so any, you know, material um, invasion of that ecology is going to disrupt that ecology, right? So uh, um, you put a bunch of cognitive technologies in our uh, um, human social ecology, they will progressively disrupt it. They will alter it. They'll change it. And heuristic cognition, being you know um, circumstance dependent the way it is, I mean, it takes things. It, it only operates by taking background regularities for granted. You know, as soon as you start mucking with those back background uh, regularities, right, in this case. Basically, only having, you know, biological intelligences, <laughs> we could take, we could take so much for granted just simply because our intelligence is really the model for all intelligence around us, including animal intelligence, right? I mean, we'll share far more in common with our dogs than we will with these, uh, um, conversational user interfaces. And, uh, um, the fact that our 
the winning buttons are so easily pushed um, means that they don't actually have to be all that smart to fool us. So we don't have to worry about super intelligence. I mean, um, you know, we'll be at each other's throats long before we ever get to the point where uh, um, the singularity takes off. This is one of the things I hate about the, the AI debate, as you, you know, see it popularized. It's just, it's just, it's bonkers, right? That the improve the user experience, everything's great on the one end, and then you have Skynet <laughs> on the other, right? When really all the problems are are in between. <laughs> like it underestimates our vulnerability to simple stuff. Exactly, it completely underestimates our vulnerability, right? I mean, uh, um, and, you know, historically speaking, we've only ever caught on to the fact that we're doing, you know, uh, um, horrific ecological damage after that damage um, is, you know, well, well, the pace, right? Um, and if we, you know, fall into that pattern again with this, then, uh, um, yeah, like I say, I just, this is, this is the whirlwind. For me, it's, this is the semantic apocalypse and the final stage, right? Well, I have I have one more question before we get into uh, more like spoiler territory for uh, the unholy consult. Uh, so it's worth mentioning in all of uh, in all of this that while modern neuroscience and psychology works upon the assumption that the gods do not speak to us, uh, in your second apocalypse saga, the gods are real and sometimes do speak. Can you provide an overview for for how the gods function in a uh, in a fictional universe that you've, where you've put so much thought into the inner workings of consciousness uh, and philosophy? Yeah, I, I mean, the, the conceit's actually kind of uh, embarrassingly simple. I mean, ultimately, I, I mean, it's um, the gods are you know in a sense the drives you know the the uh, um, heuristic modules, right? The uh, um, Subpersonal processes that um, are constantly underwriting, you know, sometimes undermining, sometimes making possible right, the the uh, workspace of uh, of consciousness, which is the world, which is physical reality in uh, in my books. And so, um, you know, the the whole series is is uh, itself uh, um, and analogy or allegory for um, this uh, um, ancient anthropomization uh, of uh, of uh, the universe and the cosmos right only as you know uh, um, projected given a, uh, a modern understanding uh, of you know um, the way in which cognition works System two, which is reality. System one, which is uh, um, uh, all the subpersonal processes, right, that um, are constantly impinging upon system two, the deliberative reality of, of conscious experience. And then, you know, um, to crib uh, uh, the term from Neil Lawrence, system zero, uh, which um, lies outside of that inside outside, um, which of course is, is the no god. All right. Well, I think that's that 
means we should probably get into the... That's too big of a spoiler? No, no, no. I think we should... That's the, that, that signals that we should get into the uh, some of the, the spoiler discussions uh, here. So... So here be warned. Yes, here if, be warned. If you if haven't you're yet read Scott's books and you plan to, uh, you, you, you may depart. In the, se- the seventh book. <laughs> so the seventh book, uh, to your, uh, second apocalypse saga came out this summer, uh, completing, uh, I guess you'd say the second movement, uh, of the saga and bringing the action to Golgotaroth, which, uh, the focal point of evil in your world and it mirrors the significance of, um, Mordor's Barad-dur in Lord of the Rings. First of all, just how long have you envisioned the resulting battle and the resulting showdowns, and did it come together as you imagined it would? Um, the idea, I mean, the boilerplate idea with this standoff um, with with Kellis and the consult um, at Golgotha, um, I, I came up with when I think I was um, 17, 18 years old when I was. Uh, just a, a wee wee little punk, and uh, um, I uh, uh, have basically been obsessing over it for about 33 years now. <laughs> I have snippets snippets that I've written 20 years ago, snippets that I've written 30 years ago, snippets that I've written three years ago. I mean, uh, um, it's been uh, basically my obsession for my entire adult life and uh, um, you know, the prospect of actually writing the conclusion um, terrified me at first just simply because I thought you know so much cogitation <laughs> kind of whittled down to such a sharp point it just seemed uh, impossible uh, to me and uh, um, I was afraid that uh, I would freeze like a, a deer in the headlights but uh, for whatever reason, I mean, I mean, the gods wrote it, basically. I mean, it was, <laughs> it's one of the strangest uh, sustained writing experiences in, in my life. I mean, um, I literally felt like I was just simply uh, channeling. <laughs> um, channeling. Uh, I mean, there's a rough draft. I mean, there's a lot of reflection that goes into the many, mm-hmm. many uh, subsequent drafts, but um, there, there was a period uh, of over a year where uh, um, I would just sit in front of the screen and my fingers would tap out this stuff and and um, I would marvel. And uh, um, in that sense, my subpersonal pro- processes, right, uh, the gods uh, underwriting my own conscious experience, were in charge uh, in charge of uh, the whole show. Well, it's as as readers know uh, at, at this point, Kellis uh, basically unites uh, most of the world in this effort against the consult, uh, in this effort against the uh, uh, the forces of, of the apocalypse, and uh, and and fails. Uh, the 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 book ends in just the, the complete defeat of the, the these forces of, uh, of of the greater good that have been marshaled. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so in a sense, uh, if we, we go with the analogy that the gods were speaking to you, was there any kind of last temptation where <laughs> there was a, a temptation to, um, to provide, I guess, to provide the sort of ending that I seem to think some readers, I don't know how they ended up expecting it, uh, but, uh, some of the d- d- divisive, uh, responses have seemed to line up with some expectation that I guess 
your future writings in this world would just be a victory lap for Kellis. Um, but was it, but was there a temptation at all to, to, to provide that kind of ending? I, I mean, I'm sure, I, I, I don't know. You know, the thing is, is that, uh, um, because basically the idea is to, you know, bring the reader along, um, as viscerally as, as possible. And, you know, um, so, you know, to have <laughs> their, you know, moral confusion, uh, um, to, uh, uh, match, you know, to resonate with the moral confusion of, uh, of the characters in the book, right? To have, you know, their revulsion to resonate with the revulsion of the characters in the book. And also to have their hopes resonate with the hopes of the characters in the book. And then, you know, I mean, the no god is, is, you know, the, the event, the, the point at which meaning is done, right? It's over. No such thing as destiny, you know, no such thing as contact with, with God. Um, it is the point where meaning itself breaks down. And the reader is, you know, reading a narrative of this story where meaning breaks down. In other words, they're actually, you know, participating in this narrative of the death of meaning via meaning. And, you know, the, the whole idea of having <laughs> that meaning just cut short. I mean, uh, um, you know, especially when I was younger. I mean, it just seemed like the the greatest idea that anybody had ever had in the history of human race, mm-hmm. <laughs> which many ideas do. They seem like that when they're uh, a teenager, I guess. But I mean, I've been committed to that right from the very uh, from the very beginning, and uh, um, I knew it pissed people off. <laughs> I, I knew, you know, the because it's funny. I mean, there's, you know. Uh, when you look at the reviews on Amazon, especially, uh, um, I mean, you see one star, five stars, one star, five stars, one star, one star, five stars, five stars. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I mean, it's just the book divides readers in what I think for any writer has to be a very commercially alarming way. But, uh, um, I don't know, like I, uh, like I say, you know, it's my wife who, who's constantly bugging me to be more accessible. <laughs> It's not like I have any control over it. <laughs> Whatever say I had, uh, uh, I I seeded uh, a long time ago. This, this story's been in the driver's seat for quite some time. <laughs> well, uh, I'm glad you brought up you know revulsion and uh, you know and, and our level of investment in the characters because I I certainly felt at the very end uh, as things really um, uh, <laughs> turned uh, to, 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 for the worse. I uh, I did feel a sense of of revulsion and. Uh, confusion you know i had i i had so much uh within the context of of, of reading the fiction i had so much hope in kellis uh that mm-hmm. afterwards i really had to process how i felt about what happened uh how but in in processing you know i realized that well all of this is in in keeping with the work like i am supposed to feel this way i'm not i'm not feeling this way uh, about a uh, about an error in a in in a work or uh, or some sort of uh, mm-hmm. failure in a work i'm i'm uh I'm, I'm responding accordingly. And I, 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 mm-hmm. yeah, I just, I feel like maybe some of the reviewers are, 
respond they're they're reacting before they reach that point like they're just having a visceral reaction to the book because i know they didn't just read the unholy consult like they've they've been with you with you for six previous books they know what you're about (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah exactly yeah but it just goes to show right i I mean it's the power of uh of narrative cognition i mean that's how powerful it is is, right i mean a, a narrative that um is denied resolution, right, is a narrative sin. Um, I mean, it has its own, you know, in, internal uh, logic, internal normativity that gives people, you know, the most intuitive yardstick that they could possibly have when it comes to judging a, a word, you know. So, you know, I mean, it's, a, it's a, I mean, it's a fantasy series on purpose. You know? I mean, um, I, I wanted to write something that actually reached out to people, you know, like Theodore Beale, right? I mean, I know he's read he's read my books, right? Um, I think he's even recommended my books. And to me, that's a huge victory because I think one of the biggest failures, you know, leading up to the circus that's Washington today is, you know, this, this belief uh, on the part of the left that, you know, not engaging... You know, the, uh, um, kicking everyone out of the uh, out of the uh, uh, backyard backyard barbecue, right, would put an end to you know problems like racism, misogyny, and, and so on and so forth. When you know anyone I think who spends any amount of time on the on the web actually ranging outside of uh, you know liberal in groups can see just how not the case <laughs> that is I mean uh, um, for me the web uh, this is something I've been arguing for years and years as well I and mean, how the web is undermining uh, human social ecology and I could go on to that for hours as well but um, it's a fantasy because I wanted it to reach people who aren't otherwise exposed to um, things nearly so problematic as what you find in you know say, uh, David Foster Wallace novel, you know. So to, to read something infinite just like um, in a popular genre. And so I knew, I mean, I knew going in that a lot of people would be really pissed off. And um, I think I think you got it. I mean, some people, they sit back and they reflect and then they realize, yeah, whoa, right? Some people, they, they just follow that internal logic and they're like, this is garbage. I can't believe I, I wasted money on this fool. And other people are like, oh, okay, I get it. This is what you were trying to do. Yeah, well, you're just a pompous asshole. And they don't like it as well, right? And I understand all three responses. So, you know, and I don't necessarily disagree with that last one either. <laughs> I mean, uh, um, you know, it's a, it's a crazy project they set out to do. And, uh, um, I don't know. I think it's worthwhile. <laughs> so, in in terms of the overall project, there is going to be a is, there is going to be a third uh, section to the saga. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah. So, so um, I mean, when I originally envisaged this uh, um, back when I was a punk, uh, um, it was going to be a trilogy. It was going to be the Prince of Nothing, the Ashback Emperor, and then you know, now I can say the name of the third book, the No God. Um, um, the story idea only went up to the end of the Aspect Emperor. 
and have never actually settled on what happens past that point. I mean, that point has always been the point where where the narrative ends. And so, I mean, for me, um, if you think of the ending of the book, everyone, you know, is scattered and running from the whirlwind, <laughs> wondering who survived and who died and what have you. I mean, that's exactly where I see myself. I mean, I'm with the readers here. I'm, I'm running from the whirlwind. I don't know who survived, who died. So this is the point where I become a, a discovery writer. Oh wow! Um, and I find out, I find out what uh, what happens after after this point. But for me, it's weird to say you, know, you have these huge projects that that dominate so much of your imagination and so much of your life, and and if you're uh, you know, sort of inclined to uh, um, self skepticism and uh, pessimism, the way I think I am. <laughs> You just assume that something's going to happen. I mean, I always thought a mass truck or something was going to slam into me. <laughs> but I'd never be able to finish this, right? And so when I actually finished the book, and then when the book actually made it out on shelves, and I'm sitting there and I'm still alive, right? I'm still breathing, you know, I'm still not experiencing failure. <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, I mean, I, uh, uh, um, it, was, it, was a, it was a surreal moment, you know? It, it, it's almost kind of like one of these things where you know you don't plan for success. <laughs> I just never really planned to actually, you know, get to this point <laughs> where I'm uh, you know post post uh, the unholy consult. Um and I don't think that's a bad thing. I mean, I find it uh, exciting, exhilarating even in a, in a lot of different ways. But it's a much different place to be uh, for me as, as a writer much different place yeah it's it's interesting to hear you say that you don't know the um uh, the the initial fates of of many of the characters because because reading it I, i'm thinking oh what happened did this one this character die are they going to survive uh, what seemed to happen uh, there and then you kind of assume that uh, that uh, that baker has a has a list uh, set aside with check marks beside who uh, who survived <laughs> and who didn't uh, but maybe not and that's actually more uh, it's all superposition yeah <laughs> Yeah, that's right. Um, I, I mean, cause I, it's not as though I haven't been, you know, writing. It, it's not as though, you know, post uh, Unholy Consult uh, scenes haven't come to my head, right? I mean, I have all kinds of scenes written, but they don't really, they're not really compatible with each other. It's just been so many years, you know? I mean, it really is. It really is crazy uh, um, if you think about it. I mean, to have a single story in your head for 33 years, right? I mean, uh, um, yeah, that's, that's a lot of notes. It's a lot of, uh, a lot of disorganization, a, a, a lot of, uh, um, uh, uncertainty. So I really don't know. So moving into the, into the future, uh, we can expect more books in the series. Uh, but what about, uh, um, other things you're working on? Can we expect any more Disciple Manning, uh, uh, detective stories, uh, or uh, any, any other works you're, uh, you're engaged in right now? Yeah, I mean, the one thing I'd love to do is, uh, I mean, I've had this idea for uh, a disciple, second Disciple Manning uh, novel called uh, The Enlightened Dead um, for years now. And, and I mean, I really, I could really use <laughs> a Disciple Manning novel right about now. Um, but the, the Disciple of the Dog, I mean, people just don't really follow writers across genre lines, right? Hmm. Um, the... Uh, 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 Big 
creative event in my life. I mean, it, it, and oddly, you know, having this, you know, uh, um, eye, this uh, um, eye problem I had where the center of my visual field was occluded. I actually called that my little Kelmomus. <laughs> <laughs> it's a little part of my vision that I couldn't see that was distorting everything, right? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, the other the other thing was my uh, hard drive um, uh, crashing just weeks after um, – uh, well, probably more like months after I'd submitted the final manuscript for uh, the Unholy Consult, um, all my meaning did die. Oh. <laughs> I mean, my computer, <laughs> which I had for 10 years, which had, you know, the content of all my other hard drives that I, I you know, uh, um, stashed uh, on it when I bought the computer, um, it died on me. And it took uh, a few months for them to reconstruct it and I had to, had to pay a bunch of money uh, um, to get uh, to uh, um, get what they were able to salvage back. But for a while there, I didn't know if they'd be able to salvage anything. And uh, um, uh, just several weeks back now, I, I got uh, the uh, salvage files back and discovered that everything I'd written in the previous six months was, was what I had lost. And so what I'm concentrating on now is just basically rewriting all that stuff that I had written the previous six months. So I had a huge review, um, not so much a review as a, as a sort of commentary on, uh, on uh, Bennett um, that uh, I'm just finishing off now that I've lost. I was actually a day away from, uh, um, from posting it when my, my hard drive died. And... Uh, um, I also have a, a science fiction novel called uh, The Lollipop Factory, which uh, was over half completed, and I lost oh. half the entire thing. Uh-huh. And uh, um, I really, really like the idea. It's a great idea, and uh, I want to. I know if I sit on it and, rather than dive into it, that uh, um, it'll it'll be much harder for me to, to salvage it. So, so I'm planning on uh, digging back into that. And then uh, um, getting right back into um, the uh, uh, second apocalypse and see where the words take me. Yeah. All right. Well, well. Good luck with uh, with the roads ahead, and and thank you once more for uh, taking time out of your day to to chat with us about uh, about philosophy and consciousness and uh, the coming whirlwind. <laughs> yes, and the whirlwind. I, I thank a million, and uh, um, if you could do me, uh, uh, I don't know if I should say another favor or whatnot, um, but spend some time on this AI stuff, because, uh, um, you know, it's one of those things, you know, I, I could be wrong, <laughs> I don't think I'm wrong, right? I mean, it is, after all, just philosophy, but if I'm right, we're f- <laughs> um, and, and we will be in, uh, it, we will be in short, short order and uh um and things you know as weird as things seem now i mean everybody feels that we're staying in technological marvels as it is right um uh it is going to get strange so fast and people aren't really going to understand what's happening because they don't have even the merest sense uh, of uh just how ecological you know, the relationships to one another and to their society as a whole are, you know, how much they depend on uh, on these Darwinian buttons, you know, not being commercially exploited by 
active, interactive, artificial, invasive species. You know, there billions of these things in our lives in very short order. So, so if you guys, if there's, if you can find anyone else who's like Neil Lawrence, give Neil Lawrence a call. Okay. okay. That kind of scares the shit out of you. Yeah. So he'll blow your mind. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, thanks a lot, Scott. Thank you. All right, so there you have it. Thanks again to Scott for coming on the show and talking with us. Uh, make sure you check out the landing page for this episode at StuffToBlowYourMind.com because I'll make sure to include links out to Scott's website, his social media presence, uh, and where you can find out more about his books if you're not, if you're not already uh, familiar with them. So I haven't read the Second Apocalypse books, but now that I've had them spoiled, I think it's time for me to jump right in at the beginning. Well, I, I have to, to stress that uh, if anyone else is out there, out there is in your shoes and, and something's been spoiled for you, these, these books are not like, uh, you know, twist dependent. I mean, the, the right. twist is, is pretty great and, uh, and really grabs you by the heart. But, uh, the books are rich enough, the world is rich enough, and all the different stories that, uh, weave in and out of it, uh, you know, are, are still gonna have their, uh, their potency. Yeah, I mean, I, I read plenty of books after I've already seen the movie. <laughs> yeah, I've gotten to the point, sadly, where I'll, I've, I've actually started going to, uh, films and going ahead and checking the spoilers if I know the film is supposed to be particularly horrific or have anything <laughs> that's kind of controversial. I'm like, uh, I guess I'll check and just see what the the thing is that I might not like just to prepare myself. Right. Yeah. So you've been to all the wiki pages for Mother and stuff like that. Yeah, I, I specifically looked up the new film Mother to see if it was something I was going to be okay with seeing. And, uh, and I'm like, ah, okay, I guess, I guess. I guess I'm on board with that. Put a raincoat on your mind. There you go. All right. Well, hey, if you want to check out more of what we do, again, head on over to StuffToBlowYourMind.com. Also, check out our various social media accounts. We're on Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, Instagram. And, hey, on Facebook, we have that discussion module, a special group that you ask to join, and you'll you'll get in unless... Unless you're really odious. Exactly, exactly. So uh, so check it out. It's a great place to have longer-form discussions with other listeners and uh, even with the hosts. And if you want to get in touch with us directly, as always, you can email us at blowthemind at howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com.